But anyway, but I'll let you know like as we're getting closer. Yeah, of course. Um, good. All right, so let's get started. So we're yeah. going live. Yes, going live. We're getting a lot of good comments already in the chat. This is awesome, solid energy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to live stream number 86.5, because this one's a little bit off the charts. Uh, very, very good to be here with everybody today. Already nice to see all the energy going in the chat. This is what we want, all right? We want your comments. We want your questions. We want your suggestions. One thing that I will leave in the chat before we get started, we will be having a co-located event in KubeCon on October 12th, all right? Uh, I will leave the link for that here so you can register already. It's totally free. We will also be having the DOK Students Day on October 6th, all right, the week before. So if you are interested in giving a talk, even if you're a total beginner when it comes to data on Kubernetes, please jump in our Slack. We've started a thread in the Beginner Arena channel. And if you're interested in giving a talk, it'll be, it can be just a five-minute talk about one concept related to the data on Kubernetes ecosystem. And we will help you. We will give you support. We'll be doing rehearsals. That way, you'll have a YouTube video showing uh, your skills, increasing your personal brand. So if you're interested in doing that, jump in and we will be able to support you, find a way for you to get involved. Our speaker today is no stranger to the data on Kubernetes community. No coincidence that we mentioned KubeCon because in our last KubeCon co-located event, Alex gave an amazing talk about, also related to Cassandra. But today he's going to be giving us an intro. But before that, I would like an intro to you, Alex. Welcome to the data on Kubernetes community again. And how are you today? Thank you. Uh, well, I'm excited and happy to be here. And it's been a while since we last time met. So uh, glad to see you again. Uh, on the KubeCon, we will do a, like ways how do you run uh, Kubernetes for big data and big data on Kubernetes using Cassandra. But if you want to get something from it, you need to understand what's the Kubernetes is and what's the Cassandra is, right? So um, I will uh, let um, Bart to take care of you uh, Kubernetes knowledge, and I will take care of your Cassandra knowledge. And that's what we are doing today. Yep, perfect. That being said, uh, Alex, you can start jumping in right now with your presentation. Remember, folks, if you have questions, you can ask them in the chat. Also, for folks, just to remember, we have a project where we are going to start putting the rap lyrics. I'm sure you all know very well that we have lots of raps. We're going to be putting the rap lyrics on a database, and that database happens to be Cassandra, right? So there's a lot of relevance in the session we're doing today. We want it to be as practical as possible. If you're interested in working on that project of getting those rap lyrics on the database and then putting that onto Kubernetes, please jump in our Slack and let us know. Get in the beginner channel, beginner arena channel, and we will get you uh, properly situated with our amazing interns and the folks that are already working on that project. Alex, take it away. And last point before we go, uh, could you please give me a temporary moderator uh, permissions on YouTube? Because I will have to paste some links and as a non-moderator, I cannot do it. Um, here on Zoom, you mean? No, 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 on YouTube. Uh, uh, I can paste them directly. Or yeah, if you, pay, if you paste them here in Zoom, I'll, I'll just put those right over there in, in, uh, in, well, in the chat. Yeah, sure, that works for me as well. Uh, so let's start. We have only two hours. And when I start to speak about Cassandra, where I love Cassandra, then it may take a couple of days. So let's start right now. <laughs> Good, let's do it. Uh, yeah, so uh, looks like I'm sharing my... Yeah, perfect. And hide floating meeting controls, and we must be good right now. So, um, welcome to intro to Apache Cassandra, decentralized NoSQL database for big data as well, but not only. I'm Alex Volochnik, developer advocate at DataStacks, 
And my primary work, the purpose of my work is to help you uh, succeed with Cassandra. Cassandra is extremely powerful too, but on the scale from bicycle to Boeing, it's way much closer to Boeing than to bicycle. And obviously, if you just uh, jump in on the um, airplane and trying to push uh, all the buttons, turn all the knobs, you may run into a little bit unhealthy situation. So my work is to let you not fall, but fly. And with that, let's start. So, uh, today we will discuss what is Cassandra, how it works, and when you need it. We will talk about what kind of a downsides it has because you need to understand some potentially dangerous situations and how to handle them. And we will talk about the use cases. Before we proceed, I want to ask you some questions. So, the easiest way for you to answer my questions is to go to menti.com and use the code 94257412 or simply scan this QR code and you will be able to answer my questions because I want to understand the level of the audience today and it can be a little bit different so I will know on what I should focus the most and what I can skip more or less. So I want to see you on menti.com. I will send you a link or actually uh, Bart, could you yep. please paste this link and the code? You got it's it. Right on the screen, 9425-7412. And uh, meanwhile, while you are connecting, you will see we have we will have a little game in the end. I will ask you questions about the content I gave you during today. You will try to answer those to answer, give the right answers and do it fast enough. We'll get the prizes from data stacks. So, um, and today we have quite a lot of attendees, but again, not thousands so far. That means what everyone has a chance to win and you don't have to be a Cassandra professionals. And our prizes, our swag is, well, quite nice. So, uh, menti.com 9425-7412. And I will start, that's not a competition yet, that's not a quiz, just some setup questions. And I see many people have joined it already. So let us start. First, what's your experience with relational databases? I don't mean like uh, any particular of them, but whatever you know works well. Uh, MySQL, PostgreSQL, Oracle, Microsoft, and so on and so forth. And it looks like we have uh, mostly beginners today, and that's completely fine. You know what? I like all of you because as a student, you are attending these events. It means you want to be better in what you are doing or will be doing. Uh, you are curious and that's what I like in the people the most. So most of you have some understanding of relational databases and that's great. If you do not have at all, it's also completely fine because as said, it's introduction. So don't worry too much about that. Next question. What's your experience with NoSQL databases? Normally on this slide, we have like a, a shift to the left because um, people often use relational databases, but not too much NoSQL databases. So that's quite expected. Good, not at all, a little. That works quite well to me. And okay, most of you have answered it already. Let's move on. 
I don't want those questions to take all day, so let's answer fast. What's your experience with Apache Cassandra or Datastax Enterprise, maybe Datastax Astra? Known. Known, known, known. That exactly means what you are in the right place to be. And okay, we have someone who, ha who has already some experience or general understanding. That's also perfectly fine. Let's see if I will be able to surprise you with something. I will try. Uh, have you heard of CAP theorem? It's also known as Eric's Brewer theorem. That's good. Don't worry if you don't. We will cover it briefly today. So most of you haven't heard. We will fix that right now, or at least in a few minutes. So that's good. Now, my final question for today for the setup questions. Normalization, denormalization. Have you heard anything about that? What does that mean to you? No idea. That's fine. I understand these ideas. Denormalization can be useful. Usually people say, people what are not familiar with, uh, yeah, finally I get the answer I was expecting. I quite often hear what denormalization is bad. Is it really bad or is it not so bad or it can be bad or harmful? We will see today a little bit later. With that, my setup questions are done. I see quite a dispersion, which is great. And we are done with the setup questions, but don't leave main team. We will use it in the end of the today's session. And now we go and we start. So what is Cassandra and when do you need that? So it's very important to understand. Um, there are few hundreds of NoSQL databases and a lot of them are very different to each other. There is not a single very united family, but like a group of different families. Cassandra is a very interesting thing. It's a NoSQL distributed decentralized database and every word in this phrase matters a lot. So NoSQL obviously means uh, not or not only uh, SQL database. Okay, distributed means what you usually run Cassandra on multiple servers working together. Usually we call Cassandra server a node and a group of the nodes working together known as a cluster. And finally, decentralized means what, um, there is no thing like primary node or master node or write node or anything like that, but every node has the same responsibilities, also manages different parts of data, as you will see soon. Uh, it's quite the concept and it's a great thing, you will see soon why. And the last word in this phrase, it's a database. I hope I don't have to explain you what the database is. But if I do, uh, it's just a place you store some data, normally of your clients, of your application. So as I say, normally you run Cassandra in a distributed way. So you have multiple nodes working together. Group of nodes located together, build a data center. And normally with Cassandra, you can have multiple data centers working together. Uh, I will show it on the next slides. Uh, traditionally, we call a data center a ring, uh, but well, that's not a ring uh, architecture, but actually every server, every node is able to communicate 
with every other server. So the, every server communicates with each one. Normally, they um, for uh, completely, uh, there is no links like from master to slave replica. Again, as every server is the same. They communicate using gossiping protocol. One, one question, Alex. Sorry. Uh, uh, we got a question in from the chat. Uh, Ishan, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. so, no SQL will mean here that uh, data can be stored in JSON format. Okay. So data indeed can be stored in a JSON format, but don't run, uh, don't rush. Uh, you will see soon how it works. Uh, in comparison with, um, for example, MongoDB, the uh, JSON is the primary way to work. With Cassandra, you can use JSON, but it's uh, there are other ways to work. Let's see. So, well uh, then, Cassandra architecture looks quite complex, and indeed, it's not so easy to run Cassandra cluster as, let's say, single MySQL deployment. But um, do people use that for really because it's going to require some skills, let's say, to run a Cassandra cluster? Uh, in uh, last report at Data Stacks Accelerate 2019, uh, well, it was like two years ago. It was a great conference, by the way. Uh, Netflix reported what Cassandra is for them, the primary database, and uh, they have like around 60 or 70,000 of Cassandra nodes with hundreds of clusters, and it's the main source of trust for nearly every data they dispatch. So quite a lot. Can anyone be bigger than Netflix on Cassandra usage? Yes. Um, meanwhile, at the same data stacks accelerate, Apple reported one of the primary databases for them to be Cassandra with over 150,000 Cassandra instances working together, taking care of hundreds petabytes of data. Later on in 2020, we found out what actually no, Apple is not the biggest Cassandra user, although one of the biggest Cassandra developers, because we have many Chinese companies like Tencent, uh, WeChat, Alibaba, and so on, also building their business on uh, Cassandra. Another question, Alex. Sorry, mm -hmm. a couple questions. Yeah. Um, one is about what does uh, how does gossip communication work? Uh, it's a little bit out of scope for today because okay. uh, the, that's getting deeper. But the, no general, the general idea is gossip communication means what uh, every node uh, within some time uh, reports its state, its uh, token ranges, I will explain later, and uh, nodes intercommunicating and passing by this information to other nodes. Um, the general idea is cluster to be 100% reliable and available always, 100%. No, not like 99 uh, 0.99999, no, 100% of time. Okay. And uh, that means what data can be transferred even if the or, or, origin date, origin source is for any reason unavailable. Then how is data preserved in case of failure of a node? I'm getting there, don't rush, I will explain that. Uh, good. How is number of nodes in one ring decided? Uh, Kaiwala asks a good question. So how number of nodes on one ring is decided? It's decided by you. So uh, when you add more nodes into the cluster, in, into the data centers, therefore you will have as much servers as you added them. So it's quite simple. So, and by the way, now those numbers are much higher. So what uh, are the primary features are companies speaking Cassandra? What are the killer features? So first, 
Cassandra is uh, distributed and big data ready from the very beginning. So it means what in the, if in the beginning of your project, you will be fine with only three servers or even with only one server, although it's quite rare deployment for Cassandra, you are completely fine and you can go with one server with three servers. But if tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, you will need 3000 servers, it's completely fine. Cassandra scales linearly. When highest possible availability, because of a data distribution and replication and no single point of failure, because it's decentralized or masterless, um, with the right architecture and right data model, your data stays available literally always. And it's not just fault tolerant, it's disaster tolerant. Then geographical distribution, because of native multi-data center deployments, when you have one data center in the United States, one in Europe and one in Asia, your system can survive even full data center wipe because data stays available on other data centers. And Cassandra drivers design it away, so we will switch to next available data, data center. When finally, read and write performance. Obviously, Cassandra is very fast, but not only that. With many of the databases, for example, like Mongo, like relational databases, you can easily scale for write. You add more replica servers or slave servers, and um, your application may execute a lot of reads. But if you need to scale for writes, then you cannot write to these replica servers. You cannot write to slave servers. You need to write only to master service, uh, servers, and they aren't so good in scaling, obviously. So Cassandra scales perfectly for write iterations as well. And finally, what matters for many of us, what matters a lot for me, Cassandra is vendor independent. Cassandra doesn't belong to any particular commercial company. You know, Datastax stays behind Cassandra, behind Cassandra, right? But Datastax doesn't manage Cassandra because Cassandra belongs to Apache Software Foundation. Apache Software Foundation is biggest or probably one of the biggest uh, non-commercial software foundations what manage open source software. And therefore, uh, it's uh, protected from the deep wishes of some of the commercial enterprises, let's say. Um, what are the biggest developers of Cassandra? So, so far, for the last years at least, Apple was one of the biggest contributors to Apache Cassandra. Uh, Netflix, Instagram, of course, Datastax, and many others. So Cassandra is a project baked by many and managed by Apache Software Foundation. Are there any questions? Uh, what does scaling linearly mean? Uh, Tim van der Keer, uh, I uh, will show that in a moment. In simple terms, what is a big data? Okay, that's a great question. There, Amit Karnam asks whether what's a big data? Um, answer is, hmm, there are many scientific uh, answers. I like the simple answers. Um, Big data is the data what doesn't fit a single server. I know it's like in the way, no, not exact, uh, and it doesn't sound academic enough, but for me, it works. You will see soon. Uh, any more good questions? A big data is a tool used to run SQL queries on huge, huge SQL databases. I wouldn't say so. Big data is not a tool, sorry. Uh, big data means like when you have uh, when the data of your clients now is not a single megabyte, 
or terabyte, but like petabytes already, or at least hundreds of terabytes, that's like getting closer to big data. So uh, let's go then. How does Cassandra scale? First, we need to understand how databases normally scale, what are options we have. Normally, when we speak about scaling, we speak of vertical scaling versus horizontal scaling. So what is a vertical scaling? Vertical scaling means you uh, decommission your old uh, smaller machine, bring in a bigger server, more expensive server, put your data on it, and enjoy better performance. So uh, vertical scaling is a replacing of a smaller service, servers by the bigger servers. Uh, bonus, it's easier to get. Uh, minuses, it's getting extremely expensive very soon. If you watch like on Amazon Web Services, how much top tier database servers cost, uh, there will be a very interesting numbers. And still it's a single point of failure so it doesn't matter if you have cheaper server or more expensive server, you have one server. There is another kind of a scalability, horizontal scalability. It means what instead of replacing old uh, smaller service with a, more, with a bigger one, you just add one more server like the one you already have. And it gives us some benefits. Uh, first of all, it's cheaper. So it's uh, cheaper to get the same performance level uh, without overpaying and it removes single point of failure because now you have multiple servers in multiple server racks and multiple availability zones. Then uh, that uh, also has some downsides. Everything has a price to pay. Uh, in this case, it's logistically harder, of course, because now you can manage more things. With Cassandra, Cassandra goes with horizontal scalability and Cassandra answers to most of the questions what uh, this in introduced uh, lo harder logistics gives. So Cassandra scales horizontally and that's one of the best Cassandra features. It has nearly zero overhead on adding new nodes. It means what if you have three servers Cassandra cluster, if you want to double the performance, you just have to double the number of the servers and you will have a doublet performance and doublet disk space. And again, and again, and again. And of course, there are some not really limitations, but points to understand. If your data model is wrong, it won't work this way. I will tell you why and like the, uh, we will speak a lot about data modeling today because it's a primary thing to understand if you want to succeed with Cassandra and that's my work to make you succeed with Cassandra. So Cassandra scales linearly, that's a question and I have an exact slide to answer this question. Cassandra scales linearly, what does that mean? It means uh, what, uh, exactly what I said, uh, normally when you bring more servers to your clusters, there is we have an amount of servers in the cluster and where we have amount of operations per cluster. And uh, we start to put more nodes in the performance of the clusters. Go grows as a line. So you see it's nice straight line. For most of the databases, it would be like that. Like at some point overhead um, on adding new nodes decreases overall cluster performance. With Cassandra, with Ray data model, it doesn't happen. Now, that's not my words. This um, 
investigation with research is done by Netflix, guys. By the way, if you don't read Netflix tech blog, I do recommend you because Netflix has incredible tech blog. And they did this very nice research uh, with a benchmarking Cassandra scalability on AWS. Uh, they raised it uh, in the cluster count, I believe, from 40 servers or something around to almost 300. And what we got was this nice straight line. That's one of the best features uh, which distinct Cassandra in the row of different database management systems. So how it all works, uh, what are the key principles uh, with Cassandra uh, cluster and uh, what's the main idea? First idea, data is distributed. It means what not a single server keeps all the tables you have. Uh, but vice versa, your tables are split into parts and spread to multiple servers. For example, here on the right side, we have a simple table, country, city, population. So basically amount of citizens per city, per country. And uh, how it's stored on the cluster? It's stored like that. That means what our table is uh, split into multiple parts and uh, store it on multiple servers. Now, uh, take a look at these. Uh, rows here, we have country as a designated partition key. That means what based on this row, your data will be distributed. So we have all the United States cities uh, with the, on the one server, we have all German servers on another server, we have French, uh, French city, sorry, on another server. And single server can have more than one partitions. So therefore, here we have Australia and India, for example, on a single server, which is completely fine. So why do we do that? Remember my definition a little bit before. Uh, idea is very simple. Uh, big data is the data what doesn't fit to a single server. Netflix has big data, Apple has big data, many other companies have big data. And uh, you can store these on a single machine only using network attached storages. But the point is in this case that cannot be fast. So the first recommendation, if you want your Cassandra to be fast, you need to have not network attached storages, but the local disks only. And that's very important. So that's why Cassandra distributes data. Now take a look, uh, for example, uh, the operations done to this table, like we are reading this information or updating this information all the time, uh, we get more and more requests and more and more people are using our servers. Um, obviously pressure grows and at some point cluster starts to slow down. What I can do in this case, horizontal scaling. Then I introduce more servers to this cluster. Data is being repartitioned and deliver, spread it over multiple amount, bigger amount of servers. As a result, every particular server gets lesser payload and lesser workload and may answer faster. So how it will be partitioned? Don't worry, I get them. Um, partition case is a primary case, I will explain. What about latency between distributed servers? I will explain. Uh, NoSQL DML commands are similar to SQL. Uh, in this case, yes. Uh, good. 
Okay, looks like uh, I have slides for every question you ask so far. Let's move on. So how exactly partitioning works? Answer is very simple. Partitioning works this way. Take a look, we have a table. And for every table, we have to define which column or which columns columns may will be a partition key. It can be a single column or multiple. Value of this column will be partitioned by the murmur-free hashing uh, algorithm. And as a result, whatever value it has, in the end, you will have a simple integer number. Now, uh, here we have numbers like 59, 12, 45. Of course, usually it's not 59 or 12, but much, much, much bigger integers, like very long ones. But what matters is they're still integers. And um, we call them tokens. So here we have partition key, and partition key is a value you can read. Australia, Canada, Deutschland, uh, Germany, and so on. But here we have just the numbers. And we have multiple servers in our cluster. Imagine we have cluster of four nodes, four servers. One, two, three, four. Um, every server, every node in the cluster is responsible only uh, for the part of the tokens. It's called a token range. Imagine we have tokens from only from one and to 100. Uh, normally, it's again not from 1 to 100, but from minus huge big int and to positive huge big int. But we will simplify to explain the idea. So in this case, I have four servers, and my overall token diapason, the token range, is from 1 to 100. And therefore, it's very easy to calculate. First server will be, be responsible for tokens from 1 to 25 second from 26 to 15, third from 51 to 75, and so on. And as a result, we can say what Canada, because it has number 12, token number 12, it will go to server A, or first server. When Germany will go with its uh, token 45 to second server, and finally Sydney will go to third server, and so far, fourth server stays uh, redundant, and we don't need it. Now, well, not really not needed. There are some uh, other things to consider, but let's say that's our situation in the moment. Now, imagine we start to put more and more data, and we get more and more customers using our system. So at some point, those servers are busy and tired, and we need to have more. When? we can add a fifth server, server A, B, C, D, E, server E, we add server E. What happens then? Cassandra cluster is very smart. It takes your job on itself. Idea, of, um, idea is very simple. Cluster will automatically recalculate token ranges. And when we will find out what first server is responsible for token ranges 1 to 20, Second one will be responsible for token ranges 21 to 40, 41 to 60, and so on. And data will be migrated therefore. But the same happens if we decide what we don't need extra servers anymore, like it's, uh, I don't know, whatever, not uh, right season, P 
people not selling our goods or not using our servers, then we can decommission this server. And exactly the same situation will happen. The cluster will recalculate token ranges for the uh, new amount of servers. And therefore, every server, server will become responsible for larger token ranges. Okay, so let me see the questions. Meanwhile, would increasing the number of nodes increase the performance in Cassandra? Answer is yes. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Uh, thank you for the warm words, guys. Um, so, uh, will the horizontal scaling be done only after accumulation or will it happen in a distributed manner? I am not sure I understand the question, sorry. Um, as soon as you add the server, bring server into the cluster, cluster will recalculate the ranges, data will be migrated, a new server will become available. Uh, how fast it happens? By the way, good question, how fast basically new server becomes available and fully responsive? Answer is it very depends because first of all of the amount of data. Uh, the question of data density is very important. And data density literally means how much of the data you have per server. I know companies would prefer high data density and they store many terabytes per single server. We have seen like up to 12 or 15 terabytes. That's uh, not the recommended strategy. So, I mean, you can do it. It will work, but it will work slow. For cold storage, it's fine. But if you want to have hot storage, which works very fast, you want to have your data density per server smaller. So normally we recommend to go with two to three terabytes per server. But some companies like Netflix, for example, prefer to have uh, higher uh, startup time, uh, sorry, shorter startup time. So new node starts faster. Obviously, that means what data density has to be decreased and you have smaller amount of data per server. Um, as a result, it's maybe less efficient from a costs point of view per server, but uh, you can bring on more new servers on decom or decommission some servers faster. So data repartitioning and streaming data within the cluster happens faster. And as a result, you can be more adaptive. So if you can bootstrap new server within uh, two, three hours, for example, and you know what uh, next week, or next few days you will have low count because everyone is on vacation, but it's summer, no one uses your servers. Uh, then you can decommission amount of servers and save on save money on payments for your, for example, cloud infrastructure. But um, if you expect Black Friday, Christmas sales, or I don't know if you are in Netflix and you are releasing a new episode of Game of Thrones or new season, whatever, then obviously you need what pressure will be high and then you bring more servers, scale out, and you are ready for any pressure what your customers will put on you. So should you have high data density or low data density? Depends on your data strategy. Good. So uh, how to keep data density low? Answer is simple, just bring more nodes and cluster will reshuffle data so you will have less data per server. Let's go when we discuss it, data distribution. That is good, data distribution helps us to scale out, but it's not enough. 
Like you understand what happens if this server goes down, boom, we have no data about friends anymore. And my friends uh, in France, uh, they won't be happy about that. So data is not only <coughs> distributed, data is replicated. So what does that mean? It means what every piece of data, every row or better to think partition is replicated as much time as the replication set for the current key space for the current cluster for the current data center. I will show it in bigger details in the future. General idea is what now every server responsible not for the single token range from uh, one to 17, let's say, but every server is responsible for two or normally we recommend replication factor three. That means what every server responsible for three token ranges. Now let's think about downside. Obviously replication factor three going to raise your uh, disk space consumption three times. Or if you go with replication factor five, for example, your disk space consumption is going to grow to grow to five, multiply by five. And that's obviously more expensive, but you know what costs more than disk space? Your reputation. So we do recommend to keep um, a replication factor free. And like that's a typical deployment. Sometimes uh, you may have more, sometimes, well, we don't recommend to go less only if you work with um, on in the test environment, uh, development environment, very often consists of only one server because you can afford losing data in that. Uh, so how it works? Idea is very simple. We remember what every server is responsible for free token ranges. And let's say data comes to a server, what's going to dispatch this transaction for us, dispatch this operation for us. And as we see this data with a token 59 doesn't belong to this server. And uh, this server becomes a query coordinator. So it will coordinate this query. Uh, this server is smart. Every Cassandra server is smart. It understands token ranges allocation over the cluster. And as a result, it knows what those three servers are really replica servers for this partition. Therefore, this server will dispatch asynchronously free write requests to those servers, and they all will get the data in the end. Now, what happens if one of the servers is on fire, not available, power outage, network outage, whatever outage? Idea is very simple. This uh, query coordinator will store so-called hinted handoff Hinted handoff um, is uh, just a special data. Uh, what will be dispatched to the failed server as soon as it recovers? When failed server recovers, it reports like, okay, guys, guys, I'm back online. Sorry for me being late. Did I miss anything? And then all of the query coordinators, so basically every servers what got queries uh, for the token ranges this uh, server is responsible, they will dispatch hinted handoffs to it and it will recover. And it is completely automated. So if you don't watch your logs, if you don't watch your monitoring, you won't even be notified and cluster will be self-healed. For shorter outages, uh, it's completely automated recovery. 
Now, uh, what happens if your server was out not for 15 minutes, not for one hour, but let's say for one full day? In the highly active cluster where some operations happening all the time, uh, recovery with hinted handoffs uh, may be too expensive. Uh, I mean, like from the point of view, imagine this data is being accessed and changed all the day, every second, and then server recovers to say, okay, I'm here and guts like all the terabytes of new data thrown to him. Obviously, uh, that will be a bad idea. So those hinted handoffs have a default setting depending on the version. It may be usually like three to four hours. If your server recovers within those graceful period of time, three to four hours, you can change the setting, of course, but don't make it too big. It may bring, it may bring more problems when it will solve. Um, so if graceful period of time is over, hinted handoffs will be decommissioned and it's easier to you in many scenarios will be to decommission this failed server at all and bring it back as a new server because it will use another mechanisms uh, to bring data in, which may be better for your cluster overall. So, uh, are there any good questions, Bart? I see you have some fun there. Any more Game of Thrones? Um, let's see, in terms of other stuff, since we spoke about our uh, RF and data replication, do the nodes use a slower driver for replication or do they have uniform data storage? Uh, so, like solid state uh, storage for all data. So of course uh, it's recommended to use uh, SSD disks uh, for everything, for sure. Uh, what may help to raise performance a little bit is to have two different SSD disks per server. Um, I don't have real measurements, but the point is there are two kinds of the right operations on disk happen. Uh, normal persistence of the data and write ahead lock known as a commit lock. And um, to keep them isolated from, another, from each other, it may have uh, more sense to have two disks, at least when those ma magnetic disks, like those spinning. With SSD, I have to check, uh, but normally, yes, we recommend to use just the uniform data storage SSD, but local one. Good. Uh, does the RF increases with the increased number of the nodes? Answer is no. RF is, de is uh, de like declared by the administrator and just bringing more servers into data center, into cluster won't affect uh, replication factor. You set replication factor manually. Moreover, you can have different replication factors for different uh, sets of data because sometimes you have like extremely important data, some financial statements, and you don't want to have any risks of loss. And sometimes you work with a secondary data, which you don't want to consume all of the disk space. So you may decrease replication factor uh, for this piece of data. So it's configurable. So we are getting to CAP theorem. And this one is a very important one. Let's take a look on what that... Uh, sorry, Bart? Okay, so CAP theorem or uh, consistency, availability, and partition tolerance theorem. Uh, Cassandra is a distributed system. 
And uh, this CAP theorem works not only for Cassandra, but it works for literally every distributed system. If you work on something like distributed system, like whatever microservices, a server, uh, service-oriented architecture, and so on and so forth, if you work on the distributed system, this system also uh, applies, uh, this theorem also applies to your system as well. What it states, idea is, in a distributed environment, so more than one server, uh, in case of an outage, in case of a failure, only two qualities out of three can be reached. And you, in the best case scenario. Um, so, and you can decide which one you want to have. So you can be here, here, or here, but you cannot be here. You cannot be in the center and you can decide where you want to be. Now, there is a um, very often misunderstanding what Cassandra is available and partition tolerance. If you ask, uh, is Cassandra CP or AP, uh, like 80% of Cassandra users, maybe more, will say Cassandra is AP. And that's a mistake and you will soon see why. So, but first of all, let's discuss those qualities. So what exactly does that mean? Consistency, availability, and partition tolerance. Let's start with the availability because it's the easiest uh, quality to explain. Availability means simply you get the answer. You ask your database, you get the answer. You ask uh, some server, uh, you cannot reach the server, your driver switch to next available server, you get a transfer from the next available server. It goes seamlessly for your application. It's called availability and Cassandra is highly available indeed. Then what means consistency? Consistency means what you always get most up-to-date data. It means uh, because we store data duplicated to multiple servers, in case one of the servers uh, didn't get the update, didn't get uh, for any reason commit lock, wasn't repaired to the right state, you in theory can get outdated information. And uh, user um, username, user, user email has changed, you ask for it, but you ask the wrong node what stores outdated information and you will get outdated information. That's obviously bad. So consistency in this case means what you always get actual information. And finally, partition tolerance. Partition tolerance is the most misunderstood concept here. Partition tolerance means ability of a distributed system to survive network split, network partitioning between servers within this cluster or between the servers of these system. So if you have, for example, data center in Asia, data center in Europe and data center in the United States and European and Asian data centers can communicate and they can work together. But United States servers is operational but unreachable because of some um, network outage between continents. It's called network partitioning or network split. And it's a very bad situation actually. Uh, it's uh, in some cases it can be much worse than just loss, complete loss of the United States uh, data center, because loss of a data center normally means it will recover in some time. But network partitioning, in theory, may lead 
what some of your clients work only with uh, segment two, so Europe to Asia, and some of your clients work only with segment one, so United States data is not distributed because of them. And in the end, you may end up with two completely different versions of the data. And these call it split brain state, split brain state. Split brain state is a huge problem, like very, very huge problem, because there is no simple way to um, recover from this state. There is no technical means to recover from uh, split brain, but only uh, like a, really a lot of human work, let's say. Um, and uh, that's a big, big, big problem. So for, uh, then take a look. We have to pick two qualities out of three for our database management system. What can we decide on that? First of all, there is no way we can afford network uh, partitioning. There is no way we can afford split brain because for the company like Facebook, uh, recovery from split brain will take months maybe on downtime. So partition tolerance, we cannot afford in no way. It means what basically we have to decide between availability and partition tolerance and consistency and partition tolerance. What do we want to have the most? There are many different databases with different approaches. Some of the databases are CP, consistent and partition tolerance. Some of the systems are AP, available and partition tolerance, but eventually consistent. Where is Cassandra? Cassandra is configurably consistent. So please don't call Cassandra CP, it's a mistake. Um, Cassandra, e, oh, sorry, AP. Uh, well, well, neither, it's neither AP or CP, but Cassandra is configurably consistent. In any moment of the time, for each and every particular query you execute, you can set desired consistency level you require to have. What is a consistency level? Consistency level is um, defines amount of the servers, of the replica servers, you will await for, uh, for confirmation uh, from them before you return confirmation to a client who executed a query, who executed a statement. Uh, take a look, like the uh, most widely used consistency levels are one, uh, two, three, quorum, and all. What does that mean? So take a look. Uh, when I write data uh, and I have replication factor three, um, then uh, there is a client, so normally your application, and that's my cluster of six servers. Client writes data to some server. This server is not replica server, so uh, it will dispatch this data, let's say if you write something, to responsible servers. And we have one, two, three replica servers. Data will be dispatched to all of them simultaneously. But how many confirmations we will wait till uh, we return information to a client? With consistency level one, we will wait for one and only one confirmation. Again, don't get to the trap. Data will be dispatched to all servers. It's not like we only dispatch data to a single server. No, we dispatch data to always all replica servers. But how many uh, confirmations we will expect? Only one. With consistency level quorum, we will wait for confirmation from majority of um, servers we have uh, in the um, cluster for this replication factor. 
For example, majority of the servers for replication factor three means two. So uh, majority quorum literally means like a little bit more than a half. In this case, if replication factor is three, majority is two. If replication factor is five, majority is three. So half plus one. Um, or round up to uh, wall, num wall number. Then, finally, with consistency level all, we will wait for all of the confirmations. Now, let's get back. Uh, with consistency levels one, two, three, we wait for a dedicated amount of servers to confirm what data was uh, written. Or a data we select from cluster is uh, matching. This data is the same if we are not writing but reading data. Quorum means majority. Uh, all means all replicas. And for multi-data center deployments, we have some more options. For multi-data center deployments, we have local one and local quorum. What does that mean, local? Imagine you have your data centers as said in Europe, United States, and Asia. Uh, what happens um, uh, with, with, when we use local? Local means data center closest to your application server. So usually you run your database on one server and your application on another server. Alex, and you got a question? Um, sure. So for a very important query, you would configure with a higher consistency level? Right, and I will explain that in a moment. Okay, good. Thank you. So yeah, this is a good one. So uh, obviously you don't want your application uh, server in United States to work with your database server in Australia. It will uh, bring obvious latencies you, don't, you want to avoid. And then you specify for your application server in the United States, what United States database server or a database data center is local for it. Therefore, uh, using consistency level local one or local quorum will mean what application server in the US uh, will always try to work by default with a data center in uh, United States, not, uh, not in Asia, not in Europe. So it's obviously will be faster. And local one means the same as one, but within local data center. And local quorum means what we will wait for the uh, quorum, but only in the data center closest to us. Uh, quite opposite, each quorum will mean what each, we will wait for quorum in each and every data center what stores your data. And as a result, we will wait for storm, uh, for the quorum here, there, and over there. And also it's uh, like the most uh, reliable way to work, obviously, it still um, will be much uh, lower. So normally we use a local quorum approach, not each quorum and not just a quorum. Um, so now, Take a look, consistency level all. Consistency level all means what we will wait for all answers. Is it good or bad? There is no simple answer because for some scenarios it will be good, for some scenarios it will be bad. But you know what? We have a problem here. CEP theorem is still here and there is no way to cheat it. So when you bring consistency level all, what will happen? have to move this slide. Oops, too much. Give me my CAP slide, right. 
So uh, with consistency level less than all, we are in availability and partition tolerant uh, place. But if you bring consistency level to all, that brings us eventually to consistency and partition tolerance side. And boom, our Cassandra is CP. What happens then? As soon as one single replica server is not available, Cassandra cannot reach desired consistency level. And boom, you have an exception. Sorry, desired consistency level cannot be reached. Come again later, sorry. And uh, that's because we prefer consistency over availability. And now with consistency level all, we cannot tolerate even a single server loss. Now you will tell me, um, but I work with very important data. I don't want to dispatch uh, inconsistent data. What do I do uh, to uh, give answers to uh, my clients, give her like the very right answers? I still want to be available. I want to afford losing of the data. I want to afford losing of the server, but I have to be consistent. How do we solve that? There is a trip, uh, there is a trick, and I will teach you. There is a thing called it immediate consistency. Immediate consistency is quite a simple idea. Take a look. My replication factor is free. And I write with consistency level quorum. Quorum for RF free means two. Uh, and then just mathematics. If I write with consistency level two, so quorum for free. And if I read with consistency level quorum, so two, I always get most up-to-date answer. And there is no mathematical, um, uh, that's not a single chance I will get outdated information. Why? Take a look, write with consistency level two out of three quorum. I wait for two confirmations. Uh, this server also will get the data but it didn't confirm the data yet. So basically at the moment of the write, I don't know if this server got the data or maybe it's down on fire, um, stolen by uh, aliens or whatever. Then, but I do know what data is at least on two servers of three. Then I'm trying to read this data. And when I try to read this data, I request data from all three servers, obviously. And as soon as two servers return data, if this data is matching, so two servers have the same answer, I immediately dispatch answer to the client. And as a result, after a write quorum, if there are two, only two options, or I reach two uh, up-to-date servers, I immediately get my data. Or there can be a bad scenario when uh, two servers answer um, the fast, so first two servers to answer, one of them has most up-to-date data and one is inconsistent for whatever reason it didn't get the update what happens then query coordinator sees what we have a problem query coordinator sees what one uh, what servers are returning different values as a result uh, what it will do query coordinator will dispatch the most up-to-date data so consistent data to the client and initiate an internal repair repair on a failed read to recover a failed node to bring it back into the consistent state. Only two options. In first way, in the good scenario, you immediately get consistent data. 
And in another way, you again immediately get consistent data, but also Cassandra will execute a repair in the background. So when you write with uh, Quorum and read with Quorum, you have immediate consistency and you always get the most up-to-date data. Um, in general, the rule is very simple. Um, if consistency level of write plus consistency level of read is higher than replication factor, you have immediate consistency. So that means you can write with a consistency level O, after that, you can read with consistency level one. Three plus one, higher than three. So four is uh, more than uh, three, you have immediate consistency. But in this case, your write has to be executed on consistency level all, which is bad as we discussed. Uh, quite opposite, you can write with consistency level one, and then you can read with consistency level all, that also will be immediate consistency, but again, you use all, which is bad for, for high availability. So that's the immediate consistency, and that's how it works. Now, I see incredible question by Chris looking for resources on Cassandra for operators. Any suggestions? Oh, yes, I have. I have two. First, we have academy.datastacks.com. Academy.datastacks.com is a free educational resource for Cassandra team, Cassandra people. And we have a special Cassandra operations path. So you can learn everything you need to know to manage Cassandra cluster. But not only that, that's not enough to just know. Okay, just know is great. But if you can confirm that to your employer or someone who may consider hiring you, then it's always better. Because you all attended this session, in the end, we will dispatch um, a special voucher form. So you get a voucher to pass certification exam on Cassandra for free. And you can become a certified Apache Cassandra developer or Apache Cassandra operator, operator absolutely for free because Academy is free and exam, okay, exam cost have costs, but you will get the voucher. And that's great. Now, don't make a mistake. This course is not enough to pass the exam. Don't even try. You have to take courses at the academy, but they are free. They only require your time. So, um, there is a question from Abhijit Ganesh. Wouldn't it be a one-way roadblock if there is a CL1 write and CL0 read if the CL1 server fails? So uh, take a look. Uh, anyway, data is spread over multiple servers. So data is delivered to every of the replica servers. Consistency level is only about the how many of confirmations we await before we return data to a client. So, uh, and uh, finally, data distributed everywhere and you can have your data distributed geographically. And that's very important of two reasons. First, keep your data close to your clients. Uh, you know Uber, I believe um, some of you, maybe most of you are using Uber, of course. And if you uh, go uh, to an airport with Uber in the um, Europe, and let's go, you go, let's say you go to Frankfurt airport, for example, why not? Nice airport, especially terminal one. And uh, you fly to, I don't know, whatever, Orlando. 
uh, you will work. Um, we and again take Uber to get to your place to get to your hotel. Then you will work with the same Cassandra cluster or DataStax Enterprise cluster, uh, but um, two different data centers. And answers will be fast. So that's incredible. Keep your data close to your customers. But not only that, as we discussed before, Cassandra is disaster tolerant. Um, what was the name of a hurricane which nearly destroyed New Orleans? Kat Katrina, right? Yes, it was Katrina, I believe. So, correct. Um, that's correct. Yep. And uh, Katrina uh, destroyed data center of one of our clients. Uh, what was the downtime of their application? Zero, uh, because of this geographic distribution of data. So Cassandra is disaster tolerant, not only fault tolerant. Uh, but not only that, uh, as Cassandra doesn't belong to any cloud provider, but to Apache Software Foundation, non-commercial, non-profit organization, uh, Cassandra is platform agnostic, and you can have a single cluster but running simultaneously on Microsoft Azure, Google Compute Cloud, Amazon Web Services, your own data center on-premise, simultaneously. And basically, that's incredible, because if uh, tomorrow AWS introduces uh, twice costs of a data storage for your Cassandra cluster, you basically migrate to another, I don't know, to uh, one of the Ali cloud, one of a Chinese cloud or whatever cloud you prefer to use. Uh, and that's again, completely automated. You bring on a new data center on another cloud, data is migrated by Cassandra cluster. You take down the previous cluster, you are good. And it all can happen in a couple of days, depending on amount of data you have. Uh, it's uh, quite of a way to leverage your communication with uh, data, uh, with uh, cloud providers, if you believe what their prices are not fair for your company. We got, we got another question. Um, what does Cassandra do to handle deleted and updated rows? For instance, in Postgres, there is a background process which cleans and reclaims space from deleted and updated rows. So uh, that's a good question. Uh, sadly, the right path, uh, which I have slides, but uh, we won't have time to cover them today. Uh, with Cassandra, that's quite an interesting approach. There are two steps to consider. First, Cassandra uses commit log, write ahead log. So every data is persisted immediately in the moment when it reaches the server. But uh, it's fast storage, but not the storage to work with for real. It's on the storage only before data is persisted already in the right place. And this right place to store data is called um, SS tables, uh, sorted string tables. Sorted string tables are immutable. And now there is a fun fact. In Cassandra, every operation, every operation like insert, update, or delete is technically exactly the same operation. So there is no principal difference between insert, update, and delete. Because SS tables are immutable, we cannot delete a part of this table. We just write the data in the form of a so-called tombstone. So okay, this row has been deleted but it will be like one extra row with this tombstone value in the end. Um, that's easier to show with the slides, of course. Uh, thank you for a good question, Joe. 
but uh, for this one, uh, you better go to our academy.datastarch.com and pass a full course on Cassandra, uh, not this. We have only two hours today and we still have to, pull, to cover more of them. I will move on. Uh, now, oh, uh, there is a question. What are the um, backgrounds, I believe, of Cassandra in the current date, uh, if any? I will show you. There are. There are some issues. So, but uh, we will get to issues and downsides a little bit later. First, speak about uh, normalization in denormalization. What is it? Normalization and denormalization. You guys today are very cool because you don't say, don't claim denormalization as an evil. Because normally when I do this part uh, of the workshop or when we speak about normalization and denormalization, uh, people say what they, mm, what they are taught in schools, universities, what normalization is great and denormalization is evil. And like, uh, what was that only uh, seat uh, Sit uh, brings everything to absolute. Um, I'm not sure of the quote, but the idea is there is no light side and dark side. It's not like normalization is good and denormalization is bad. No, denormalization can be good as long as you control it. As long as you control denormalization, it's good. When denormalization controls you, it's bad. So let's talk about what of that? Uh, what's the denormalization and normalization? Database normalization is a process of structuring data in a relational database in accordance uh, of a series of so-called normal forms in order to reduce data redundancy and improve integrity. Uh, first was proposed by Edgar Cott in, I believe, 1960s or something like that. I don't remember exact date. What the idea of a normalization? Uh, the idea is to reduce uh, redundancy. And for example, if you run uh, employees to departments, employees management system, you have your employees table, user, first name, last name, ID, first name, last name, ID, first name, last name. You have department table with department ID and department, department one will be engineering, department two will be math and so on. So. Uh, then you want to show a list of your employees uh, with the department on the uh, right side for each of them. Then you can execute join. When uh, Some of you are not familiar with SQL, but um, simply explaining, we have two different table, tables, but when we try to get data from them, we may, have a, we may use a special construct called uh, join, uh, which will combine data from multiple tables. And as a result, we will know what Edgar Cott works in engineering department, Raymond Boyce works in math department, and so on and so forth. What are the benefits of this um, approach? Obvious, it's a simple write and data integrity. Uh, because of this uh, simple write, if I uh, create a new employee, or if I change anything, I will have to execute only one insert or only one update. If I rename a department from engineering to, I don't know, whatever, Blackmagic, because engineering very often looks like Blackmagic. 
uh, I will execute only one update. Update department uh, set department black magic where department equals engineering. Only one update. So simple write data integrity using foreign keys using these relations between tables. I can keep some checks. I can keep some uh, cascade operations. So that's quite cool. What are the downside of this approach? Because every approach has its downsides. There is no silver bullet. So negative sides, slow read. Slow read, it means if we have to execute uh, operation with multiple joins, and that's a very often a thing, then every next join will be um, slower and slower and slower. Uh, overall duration of a query will be slower and our customers are unhappy. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always unhappy with, uh, when a service online works slow. And uh, next disadvantage, comp complex queries. I know some of you familiar with relational databases and I believe already familiar with join. Um, what do you think? How many of join operations are allowed in a single a select statement um, for MySQL. How many select join, 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 join? How many joins you can have in a single select statement? Please answer on the YouTube chat. And meanwhile, I will answer this presentation. Will be uh, will this presentation be available? That's a question not to me, but to Bart. But uh, normally, as far as I know, uh, data on Kubernetes persists uh, all the streams here. Yeah. They're very persistent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, if you're referring to the slides, uh, Alex, I don't know if you share your slides or not, but the, the video will be directly on our YouTube channel immediately afterwards. Okay. And I can uh, bring you slides as well. Okay. Uh, cool. Yep. Um, question from Abhijit. Cassandra resembles the concept of blockchain a lot, doesn't it? Well, I wouldn't say so. I believe it's a little bit different uh, concept, I believe. Uh, okay. I'm expecting 10 plus 1,000. Okay, so answer is uh, at least when I first meet this limitation, first met this limitation, so it was around eight years ago, uh, maximum amount of joins in a single air select uh, statement in uh, MySQL was 61. 61, there is a limit, or at least it was in MySQL version five, I believe. Maybe now it's so far, I have to check. But the general idea is there is a limitation, but that's not about is MySQL has any limits or not. Well, okay, it is. Uh, my question is, can you imagine maintaining a query with 61 join in it? There is a word complex queries, and that's, uh, that's there for a reason. Maintaining of a normalized table, uh, it's very hard to maintain them. And uh, no, sorry, Abhijit, I cannot confirm. Maybe in the newer versions of MySQL, there are um, no limits, which I doubt. Uh, but in the at least in the previous versions, they definitely were limits. I do can confirm it. With bloody tears in my eyes, I reached this limitation once. So let's proceed to denormalization. What is a denormalization? Denormalization is a strategy 
use it on a database to increase performance. First of all, read performance. In computing, denormalization is the process of trying to improve read performance of a database at the expense of losing some write performance by adding redundant copies of data. Uh, now, imagine we have this department data already into the table of employees. And we have Edgar Cote, Engineering, Cranman, Boyce, Math, Sage, Lachia, Math, Juniper, Jones, Botany, and so on and so forth. As a result, we don't have to execute any joins and we immediately get all the data within one query. So what are the advantages of this approach? I'm very curious about where is my, okay, my mouse is here. Uh, quick reads. Quick reads means basically what we have our data delivered uh, immediately uh, with no joins. And the second benefit, queries are much simple. And downsides. Obviously, we need to have multiple writes now. You see, it's not shown here, but we still have table uh, departments because we still have to store data about the departments. And if we have to rename or update department, now we have to execute multiple operations, which is quite sad. Um, and uh, manual integrity. Uh, in case of, uh, because Cassandra is a NoSQL database, we have no joins. Uh, there are no relations, there are no foreign keys. We cannot use joins. And as a result, we cannot use database features to maintain data integrity, and we have to execute it manually at the application layer. Is that a problem? Well, yes. I mean, uh, as an application developer, uh, I have uh, using Cassandra more work to do when I work with uh, relational databases. But on the, uh, on the bright side, as a Cassandra enabled developer, I usually work with uh, companies big enough to pay decent salaries. Companies like Apple just vacuuming job market. And uh, we lost some people of my own team uh, in data stocks uh, because basically it's quite hard to beat Apple from the salaries point of view. Uh, so I have more work to do, but I'm getting well paid for it. So I can survive the issue of uh, manual integrity or integrity um, developed on the application side. Good. So uh, that's the story of normalization and denormalization. Now, what are the key difference to understand? Uh, in the second case, we have to do more work when writing data. When I have my data model distributed, the, sorry, denormalized, I have to execute multiple writes, more work on the write time. Using normalization, I, uh, do, I have simple writes, but I have to do more work on read time. The decision kind of looks simple, uh, depending on what you have more in your application, you can rely more on normalization or denormalization if you have more uh, reads. But uh, actually it's even simpler than that. Take a look. Uh, then I have multiple joins. They cannot be executed simultaneously. They uh, can be executed only consecutively. So I have join on a table, join on the next table, join on the next table. I cannot just execute that in parallel. I have to execute first join first, then I can execute second join, then I can execute third join. 
Let's compare with multiple writes. Multiple writes to different tables, uh, can, uh, they can be executed in parallel because of a very simple reason, Cassandra is very good on the write performance. So therefore, uh, despite uh, it looks uh, just uh, quicker reads or quicker writes, idea is uh, I can parallel writes, I can execute them in parallel, but I cannot parallel joins. So here the normalization has some more benefits when we just expect. Yeah, and Joao says, uh, keep your enemies closer to you. This is the normalization. Yeah, it's something like that. Good. So um, the key feature for us um, first is a key space. What is a key space? Key space is um, like a database or like a schema in relational databases. It keeps tables. So first we create a key space. When we create tables within key space. When we create key space, we use CQL, Cassandra query language. What is a CQL? Uh, it's a bless and curse of Cassandra. It's designed to be as simple, as um, similar to SQL as possible. And it's great and very bad at the same time. Why it's great? Because it's easy to learn. If you have used uh, SQL before, it will be very easy for you to learn uh, CQL, Cassandra query language. And that's great. But what's wrong with that? People who has experience uh, with relational databases who know SQL, when they see CQL, and they think, oh, SQL is like almost like SQL. I can use it already. I'm ready to use Cassandra. And that, my friends, leads to very, very, very big problems. Then people who think like that, they uh, take Cassandra as MySQL without joins. And then they try to use Cassandra as MySQL without joins. And you know what? Cassandra is not MySQL without joins. It's very different. So they do very wrong data model. And if your data model is wrong, you, it will fail inevitably when you will need to store more and more and more data or dispatch it faster and faster and faster. So let's go deeper to the data model. Um, key spaces. First, we create key spaces. Creation of a key space is quite simple. First, we have to create key space with some name. And there are multiple different options, but the first option we have to consider is a main option, like uh, we must always specify explicitly in the create statement, is the replication strategy. So replication class can be network topology strategy or simple strategy. Um, before we were more, now we use only two. So simple strategy is, uh, well, <laughs> very simple as it states. Uh, you can use simple strategy um, and it's good for your laptop and it's bad for anything else. If we speak about staging environment, production environment, you always need to use network topology strategy. What is a network topology strategy? Uh, you can guess from the name, it's a strategy aware of a network topology. What's the point? Imagine we can have, uh, imagine we have a data center, uh, our own on-premise hardware, so data center, mm, server racks inside, and inside server racks, we have uh, servers and we run Cassandra on them. Imagine we have three server racks, A, B, and C, and we have uh, nine servers. 
So they will be like server rec A, one, two, three, server rec B, um, four, five, six, server rec C, uh, six, um, no, sorry, seven, eight, nine. Um, how network, uh, how simple strategy will allocate um, token ranges over servers? Blindly. Simple strategy just tries to put it is as simple as that, and that's its job. But you are uh, smart and curious and want to be good engineer, so you will know what uh, you have to use network topology strategy. Network topology strategy, what is it responsible for? It will try to keep replica servers as far away from each other as possible within single data center. So what do we want to have from our replica servers for a partition, for a token range? We want, do we want them to be stored on a single server rack? Like uh, your replica servers will be one to three for this piece of data. Uh, no, we don't want it. Why? Uh, servers located within the same server rack, they tend to um, fail together uh, for a very simple reason. If they're located together, they um, if they're located together, you may have some more problems because server rack tend to fail together. So just of a power outage, network outage, and so on. So network topology strategy will try to put replicas to different racks. Uh, to rep one replica will go to uh, server rack A, seven, uh, another one to server rack B, and so on. So uh, here, idea is simple. For your laptop, for a test, or for development environment, put simple. For production, obviously, network topology strategy. When? Next point we need to understand is the replication factor. So we specify replication factor by data center uh, and it can be different. So here we have uh, specified two data centers, US West one, replication factor three, and Europe Central one, replication factor five. It means what in the United States one, I will have a replication factor three for all tables in this key space. I can have more case spaces, and for tables uh, in there, I can give different uh, replication factor. And for Europe Central one, I will have replication factor five for tables within case space users. Now there is a question. How many data centers I have in this key space, I have in this cluster? Uh, we won't wait for YouTube uh, chat to get answer. I will answer right now, but just now imagine number in your head. How many data centers do I have in this cluster? Good. So the answer is, we don't know. From the, uh, this declaration, if we expect it right, answer looks like two, but really that's doesn't mean anything. I can have 10 data centers within this cluster. I just, for this piece of data, for these uh, tables, I'm going to use only those two data centers and other eight I won't use for these, at least for now. I can later change it, of course. Uh, that's, uh, by the way, use it for the situations when you uh, want data of, for example, your German clients uh, to be stored only in Germany, so GDPR. Yeah, so uh, we do not know amount of data centers in this case. We expect two or more. 
uh, if this statement is correct after all. So then next thing, uh, we uh, have to create tables. And how do we create a table in SQL? Answer is very simple. We have to create table statement. So create table statement looks very similar uh, like in a standard query language for a reason it's designed to be this way, but there are some differences. Well, first, uh, creating table, first we have to specify the key space and the table name. So key space will be killer video in this case and table will be users by city. Then we have to define some columns. So city, last name, first name, address, and email. And they all will have type text in this case. Well, of course, believe me, we have more uh, types than just text. And then finally, we have to define primary key uh, and um, Primary key consists of partition key and clustering column. I believe some of you are already typing questions, what is a partition key and what is a clustering column? Don't rush, I will explain it in a moment. So most important things, uh, things in a table uh, is the primary key. Primary key consists of two parts, partition key and clustering column. In this case, we have part primary key of city, last name, first name, and email. That is, what's that? Uh, primary key have two responsibilities. First, it must ensure uniqueness. And second, uh, second thing may define sorting. Um, and let's take a look. What's the good example here? Primary key, city, last name, first name, email. And then bad example, primary key, city, last name, first name. What's wrong here? Why this second example is bad and first example is good? Answer is very simple. As the primary key defines uniqueness and we don't include email into the um, primary key, uh, what that means? I believe in New York, you have like around two dozens of John Smiths. And obviously every next uh, John Smith will be a very bad surprise for the previous John Smith because every new John Smith in this table will override data of a previous John Smith if we don't prevent that. And there is a, a point in the chat, this seems similar to MySQL apart from mentioning the key space. Yes, that indeed looks similar to MySQL and that is a trap. It looks like MySQL, but it's not. So that's what I was saying before, be careful, don't try to use it like MySQL, it may lead to very bad problems. Uh, okay then, when meanwhile, if you have some universally unique identifier, uh, you can use it as a primary key. So if you have table of just users uh, and you have uh, unique identifiers there, then your primary key may consist only of one single key and it's completely fine. It's completely acceptable. It will lead to situation. So you will have as much partitions as much users you have. Is that bad? No, it's not bad because in Cassandra, you may have as much partitions as you want. So therefore it's completely fine to have a single partition per row, it's fine. Uh, okay, so what is a partition key? We discussed it already. Partition key, uh, is a key um, what identifies a partition and the uh, one and only job is to partition rows. Partition key is extremely important because it defines data distribution over a cluster. Uh, 
And in this example, we have, as discussed already, primary key of user ID. In this case, user ID will be partition key, and it's completely fine. Uh, but then, primary key, video ID, and comment ID. Is that fine? Take a look. We have a table of videos. Like YouTube, videos have comments. And we need to make design for comments of this video, uh, of this table. Remember, all the rows with the same partition keys will be stored together. And of course, we can execute as less operations as possible. Well then, if uh, I normally open a video on YouTube, I want to see comments for this video, and I don't want to execute a dozen of select statements uh, to retrieve all the comments, or uh, dozens of network operations to retrieve those comments. Then for these comments for my video, I use a video ID as a partition key. And as a result, we will be stored together, retrieved within the single select statement, and I will give, get them immediately. And that's again a nice partitioning. Regarding this bad example, I have a special, um, I have a special slide to explain why is it bad. And finally, clustering columns. So uh, second part of a primary key. In this case, that's last name, first name, email. What are they and how do they work? Idea is very simple. First, they use it to ensure uniqueness. And second, sorting order within the partition. Clustering columns are optional. We can skip them completely. So first example, we already discussed it. City, last name, first name uh, will work as long as you have only one John Smith per city. Then uh, city, last name, first name, email will work because uh, that's uh, unique or at least unique enough for our scenario. But then we have this example or video ID and comment ID. Will it be unique? Yes, because both video ID and comment ID are universally unique. So that's fine from uniqueness point of view. But is it good enough uh, for our YouTube system? Uh, not really, because we want to show all comments, uh, but most latest first. And as a result, uh, if we just store them by video ID, comment ID, they won't be sorted by time. So here we go with video ID as a partition key, created at as a clustering column for sorting purposes, and then comment ID for uniqueness. We cannot use created at for uniqueness purposes, because created at like multiple comments may be created at uh, the exactly same moment of the time. So we have video created at comment ID. In this case, clustering column will uh, sort them uh, and uh, we will be sorted by them within the partitions. Now, uh, we have uh, not so much time left and I still want to play a game with you um, and dispatch some prizes then, I adore that. So, those slides are the most important slides of this presentation. Um, mostly probably those slides are most important slides of each and every presentation you will see this year. That's why we have got the slide of a year award. Um, well, I created those slides and I assign at least a word to them. Uh, it sounds like a little bit, uh, maybe too much, but I do believe they are deadly important. If you ever will use Cassandra, if you know those rules, uh, if you uh, use these rules and follow them, you will be good. If you don't know them, if you don't follow them, 
you will run into very heavy, heavy, heavy and serious uh, troubles. So there are only three rules you need to know. First, store together what you retrieve together. In this case, we discussed it already. Uh, we partition comments of a video by video ID. When I open this video, I can retrieve all of the comments within one single select statement, and I'm good. Well, then primary key, comment ID created at. We try to store uh, comments. We will have as much partitions as comments we have. In this case, if we are going to uh, read all the comments to the video, we have to read as much partitions as comments we have to the videos, which is obviously stupid. So, quick, quick, question, quick question about partition. Yep. Um, uh, someone said, I didn't get the point uh, to create, for instance, a partition for each user if I just have one row per user, like primary key on user ID. Uh, uh, so you see, what's the point? Uh, Joao, thank you for a question. Um, it helps me to mm, help you get it uh, to the uh, at the full. The story is, then you access data in your relational database. You, uh, how do you think? First, you have um, database, then you have table, then you have row. And retrieving data, you have to specify database or schema or um, whatever key space in the case of Cassandra, when you have to specify table, when you have to specify the key uh, or something what will uniquely identify the row you are going to get. And you think in this simple approach, Database, table, row. Sounds good, doesn't work in Cassandra. Because in Cassandra, base unit of access is not a row, but a partition. And if you forget that, it will strike back hard. So in Cassandra, you think key space, table, partition, row. Row is always packed into the partition. There cannot be row without a partition. And there is always a partition. Uh, it partition has, um, well, uh, nearly zero expenses per SEM. Uh, so don't be afraid to have one partition per row. It's completely fine. I hope I will explain that. So uh, let's move on. Avoid big partitions. What does that mean? Take a look. Why do we do partitioning at all? Because we are ready to handle any amounts of data. Today you have, um, I don't know, few kilobytes, it's fine. Tomorrow you have gigabytes, it's fine. Next day you have uh, pet terabytes, petabytes, you still fine. Just throw more servers into your cluster, right? So, but uh, if your partitions are getting too big, then obviously uh, you will run into trouble and uh, we again run into the problem, too much data on a single server because partitions store it together as a file or part of a file on a server. And then it's getting too big, it's getting too dangerous. In this case, good example, we partition uh, comments of a video by video ID. Uh, you may say like, okay, uh, so some videos have huge amount of uh, comments and you are right. But comment by itself is just like few bytes of data because normally it's ID video, ID comment, ID author, author name, uh, timestamp, and uh, text of a comment. So it's a short text uh, thing. So it has no like too much weight. Uh, but if you partition your data, for example, for your customers by country, 
there will be some countries um, like uh, Monaco, and there will be some countries like India or China, and you will have like very uh, unbalanced story. So um, maybe uh, you need to think of having as even partitions as possible. What are the limitations? Technically, there is one and only one hard limit. One partition may have up to two billion cells. Cell basically uh, is a row calculated by, uh, multiplied by columns. Uh, calculate amount of uh, rows by amount of columns, you will have amount of cells in your partition. That's only hard limit, so quite a lot. Uh, but recommendations are, uh, in general, we recommend to stick to more or less 100,000 rows in a partition, more or less 100,000 megabytes in a partition. Those are not hard limits, so in some reasonable, reasonable way, you can exceed them. As said, I've seen like a partition of uh, 1 and 1.2, I believe, terabytes. That's a disaster. Don't do like that. Your database cannot be fast with that. Try to keep it uh, reasonably small. It will really work much better. Now, take a look. Let's solve a problem. Um, Imagine we work in a huge in, in IoT. Imagine we work in a huge telecommunication company, huge global hardware all over the world, very huge IoT infrastructure, billions of different sensors reporting their state every 10 seconds or every few seconds. Every sensor report is simple. Every sensor reports its UUID, timestamp, and value like sensor ID 1542, timestamp, so when something happened, and value is a float. What is the value in this case? It can be temperatures, uh, it can be network output, I don't know, humidity, whatever. Door open, door closed. Also a report of a sensor in Internet of Things. And originally to store this data, we designed our table like that. Uh, partition key to be sensor ID. So we will store, we will follow the rule one, store together what you retrieve together. We partition everything per sensor. And as a result, we have everything grouped by sensor. If I want to read the data from one single sensor, I can get it in one, sing in one single query. Okay. And uh, to keep a data unique, because sensor ID will be the same in every next uh, report, obviously from the same sensor. We added reported at as a clustering column uh, to keep our data sorted by time and unique meanwhile per sensor per record. Does this design works? Yes, it is. Is it a good design? Not so good. Now tell me please on YouTube chat, uh, what will happen and when it will happen and why this design is bad. In answers for that, could you also answer a quick question? Why are those recommendations there, especially the 100 megabyte one? Uh, so, recommendations there for a very simple reason. Uh, you need to keep your partitions of a reasonable size. So, uh, that's not like uh, if you exceed 100 megabytes per partition, your company should fire you. Not like that. Uh, but people all often all ask us, like, what should be desired partition size? 
and uh, it should be of a reasonable size. So like 100 megabytes, it's fine. Good, are there any more questions? No, I think for right now, I think we're pretty good. Okay, uh, so we are almost done with the slides. I want to play a game. Yes. And I only wait for answers um, on the YouTube chat, like why this design and bad is bad, and when I will run into troubles, and why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like those questions. They make you think. Uh, we will have a massive inflow of data if we keep adding data to the storage every 10 seconds. It goes against the idea uh, if we enforce point two. Nope. Uh, nope. Um, uh, point one. Uh, yes. Uh, so I will give you 30 more seconds stored together what you receive together. I will wait for a second more. I'm out of water. It will be a huge partition and that's the right answer. And actually answer is right on the screen. Ladies and gentlemen, avoid big and constantly growing partitions. So massive inflow of data. Is it a problem? No. You uh, can afford as much of the inflow data, data inflow as you want, as long as you have enough servers, because Cassandra scales. Uh, many unique partitions. It's not a problem uh, because uh, you may have as much partitions as you want. That's not a problem. But the answer is, then uh, you have uh, data partitioned only by sensor and data uh, arrives again and again and again and again every 10 seconds, then over months, your partitions will be too big, all of them together. So just again, it's two big partitions. That's what this design, that's the rule this design breaks. It's not the first one, it's completely fine. Uh, from this point of view, you store together what you retrieve together, you want to see data of a single sensor, it's completely fine. But uh, again, partitions are growing too big. That's a problem of this partition. Now, there are two solutions. Solution number one, you can allocate um, so-called TTL, time to leave. In Cassandra, every row, or actually a part of a row, may have time to leave, so it will be deleted automatically after, after this time. Uh, that, uh, that's a real-life example from the real-life story of our, one of our customers. I won't call the name, but it's a real story. So they, want, they wanted to keep this data over many years, and we decided not to apply TTLs, but use bucketing. Bucketing is a great approach What really uh, solves this problem. A team asks sensor ID reported that, that, that makes it unique. No, it makes it unique. But partitioning is defined not on the primary key level, but on the partition key level. And the partition is sensor ID only. That's a clustering column. So what did we do and how do we solve this problem? It's called bucketing. We introduce one more field here, month, year. 
So sensor ID, UUID as before, timestamp value as before by month, year, integer, or string. So month, year, in this case, it's September of 2021. So it will be 09, uh, 2021. Next, year, next month, it will be October. So it will be 10, 2021. What does that mean? By introducing month, year into our partition key, we uh, make compound partition key, which consists of sensor ID, which never changes pen sensor, and month year, which changes monthly. As a result, every next month partition uh, key will be different, token will be different, and new partition will be created based on that. Uh, and um, uh, well, then, then problem is solved. Every new uh, sensor created, every uh, every new sensor partition created, every new moment. Uh, and then finally, uh, is there any problem with growing partitions? Cassandra is good in scaling, right? Take a look. Avoid hot partitions. If you are selling your good in the Europe, and Europe has a lot of smaller size countries, you can partition your data per country. But if you, let's say, start to sell in China and you are extremely popular in China and uh, everyone buys from you, from first of all, congratulations, you are successful. But from another point of view, you have 10 servers, replication factor free, and European countries are buying not too much from you. So those partitions will be not affected too much, uh, European partitions. But one now you have one huge partition for China, right? And uh, it will be accessed all the time. And those free servers will be overloaded. You say, okay, now I have money. So what? I will buy 100 more servers, throw it to a cluster. I will be good. Will you? No. Why? Uh, because still replication factor free, free servers responsible for which partition. You can add 100 servers, 1,000 servers. That won't help because you still have the same amount of servers responsible for this partition. The partition by data model is unscalable. So avoid hot partitions and avoid growing partitions. With growing partitions, you will have too much data per server and cluster will be slow. With hot partitions, cluster will be not scaling as well as you think. Cluster won't be scaling at all. Cassandra's highest performance is a shared responsibility. There is no magic button, do it good and Cassandra will do. You have to understand what you are doing. Again, on the scale from bike to Boeing, Cassandra is a Boeing. You need to know what you are doing or you will crash uh, or you will have crash landing. And that may be quite bad experience. Yeah, so it will be unbalanced. So think of a balance. Now, um, we have to skip those because we have to go for certification. Uh, you are not ready to use Cassandra right now. Go to the academy.datastacks.com and get your certification voucher. Uh, there are two certifications for administrators and for developers. Uh, as you attended this workshop, you get your vouchers uh, for free and you will pass this uh, exam for free. Now I'm switching to Mentium. Get back to Mentium, get back to Mentium. And meanwhile, I will get my link for you for the certification. So jump back to Mentim. And that is the link, copy link. Uh, pop, 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 pop. Uh, 
part. There, where is the chat? Chat, 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 chat. Okay. I will send you a link uh, to the certification voucher. Perfect. Yep. Got Thank it. You. Yep. Good. So we are ready to jump back finally. So now uh, let the battle commence. Now you have to answer fast. I hope you're ready because I'm ready and we are getting out of time. So we will have to be very, very quick. We have 13 questions and you won't have enough. You won't have a lot of time. So six people jump in, jump in, jump in, jump in. 10 more seconds and we start. You have to answer fast, but you have to give the right answers in the same time. So it's the same Minty. I hope you didn't tweet. So we start. Okay. So answer fast to get more points. How many master nodes does Cassandra need? At least three per cluster. Three per data center. Not a single one, Cassandra is decentralized. Enough to maintain consistency. And looks like most of you made it. Not a single one, Cassandra is decentralized. That's the right answer. Now take a look. Uh, today, YouTube has a very huge latency uh, to um, real life. I am expect at least 10 seconds. So please watch your phones or whatever you use to open Menti. Mm, focus on Menti, not on YouTube, because video stream will be delayed a little bit. I'm sorry for that. So let's move on. Um, who was the fastest one? Abhijit Ganesh was the fastest one, and that's a great result. But let's move on. Uh, Joe, I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with the menti. Normally, it works well, and I see people are connected. So that's going to be question number two. Answer fast to get more points. How data is being distributed? Uh, by partitions. Uh, data is replicated to each server with address locators using post-mail. Oh, I hope all of you will give the right answer. It's a simple one and time is up. Most of you did it right. Data is being distributed by partitions. Answer is all data is replicated to each server is completely wrong for a simple reason. Companies like Apple or Netflix handle hundreds petabytes of data. Can you imagine copying hundreds petabytes of data to each server? That would be stupid. So Cassandra doesn't do it. Cassandra is not stupid. And the fastest answer is done by, hey, Kemanta uh, Srinivaskota was the fastest answer. And only Nima in Purneswar gave two right answers in a row. That's a good result. So we are getting to question number three. And answer fast to get more points. How to scale Cassandra cluster? Vertically upgrading servers. Increasing scaling factor. Horizontally adding more servers. Don't scale, Cassandra performance is always enough. So, how do you scale Cassandra cluster? Time is up and the right answer horizontally adding more servers. 
Someone was too late on this class, I believe. Yes, horizontally, adding more service. That's right. And what's going on on the leaderboard? Purnesvar makes a mistake. And fastest answer was by Abhijit Ganesh. Congratulations. And Nemo takes the first place. So far, so good. Let's go. Question number four. Answer fast to get more points. Which replication factor is recommended? 1.5, 3, 15, 42. So that was discussed in the beginning of our session. Which replication factor is recommended? Ah, team Wanderkir, that's a good performance. So all of you gave the right answers. Obviously, there is no thing like 1.5 replication. It's technically not possible. And 15 or 42 will be too much. So indeed, free. Now, uh, okay, Hamantha makes a mistake or failed to answer on time. Maybe, I don't know. Fastest answer was done by Purnesvar, which is which wants to return back to the top three. Only top three places are getting the prizes. And Nemo still holds the first place. Question number five. Answer fast to get more points. Cassandra cluster can be deployed on AWS only, any combination of cloud providers and on-premises DCs, only one cloud provider of your choice, Sega Mega Drive. Hemantha, uh, um, site is not loading. I'm sorry. I know what it happens with some of our attendees sometimes. Normally, it works good. So right answer is uh, any combination of cloud providers and on-premises DC. And I haven't seen Cassandra on Sega Mega Drive so far. So leaderboard is interesting. This time it's getting better, but Nemo was quite slow. And Abhijin was the fastest, taking over and getting first place. That's a competition, ladies and gentlemen. So question number six. Answer fast to get more points. Cassandra cluster can have multiple data centers. Correct. All DCs are available for read and write, so active. Correct. Some DCs are only for read, so passive. Correct, but not more than two DCs. Wrong. Single cluster can be deployed only on one single DC data center. Right. All data centers are available for read and write. Multiple active, active data centers. And that's a great feature. And it's native feature, moreover. So who was the fastest this time? Oh, okay. Joe was the fastest getting to the second place. That's a great result. And Neo is now out of top three. Oh my, that's interesting. So question number seven, an answer fast to get more points. CAP theorem claims what in case of a failure, C, A, and P are all guaranteed. Only A is guaranteed. Only two or three capabilities are guaranteed. Uh, CAP theorem claims what we will need a new cap. So nine people fans for it already, and that's a good result. Uh, time is up, and it looks like most of you made it. CAP theorem claims what only two or three capabilities will be guaranteed. So who was the fastest this time? 
fastest is uh yeah team i'm sorry but that like decreases your chances to stay in top three so abhijit made it and that's the fastest answer well done uh question number eight answer fast to get more points recommended way to reach immediate consistency is read write one one read write one all read write quorum quorum or with a video chat. What is the recommended way to reach immediate consistency? I have some interesting questions for you. So read, write, quorum, quorum is the right answer. Read, write, one, one doesn't give you immediate consistency at all. And read, write, one, all makes it, but it's not a recommended way. So, uh, leaderboard, that's quite good. Then question number nine, and I'm starting immediately. So answer fast to get more points. What is a key space? Uh, key space is an organized into rows and columns. It contains tables and defines replication. It's defined with partition key and contain rows. It's a place to store keys. Uh, meanwhile, Bart. Yes. Uh, I believe we are out of time, so we can stop at this moment. Okay. Or I can ask a few more questions if we have the time. Uh, we, I really do got to drop, so if we can wrap okay. it up as soon as possible, yeah. Yeah, we have to pay respect to our events and our event attendees. So that was the last question, and our time is over. And now, ladies and gentlemen, get ready to see the final leaderboard. And the final leaderboard looks like that. Oh, it was quite a wipe. Uh, okay. So Joao was the fastest this time, but and it was enough to bring him to the top three. Purneswar takes the second place, and Abhijim Ganesh takes the first one. Now, please, uh, leaders, make a screenshot of your or photo or whatever of your screen at the moment and send it to me at alexander.volochnev at datastax.com. And I will, yeah, that's the right address. And I will make sure what uh, the, your prizes will be delivered. We deliver worldwide. Thank you so much for staying with me today. And if you have any more questions, I hope you do, uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn and I will be able to invite you to the next workshop or we will see what I can do for you. And at this moment, we are done. Thank you, Bart, and thank you, everyone, for being with us. Thank you, Alex. I think we're all saying in the chat, uh, we got to figure out what we're going to do part two. Had great interactions, folks answering questions, asking questions. We got a lot of knowledge out of this. There's going to be a summary coming out in a couple of days um, from some different folks that we're going to, going to write about this. I think right. this is a great educational opportunity and now got some definitely excited uh, new Cassandra fans out there. Um, so really, really appreciate you giving your time with us today. Yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. And it was a great uh, day. Very good. Enjoy. We'll be talking Have to fun. you soon. Thanks a lot, Alex. Take care.